It's great to be back. Uh, the one and only time I preached here, we were, pre- I was, we were outside, and this was all under construction. And so I love the look, the feel, the smell. It's got that new building smell. If you could, like, capture that smell and just sell that smell, so when you go and move into an old house, just spray it, and house is old but smells new, that would be, that's a money-making venture right there. So you're welcome, whoever wants to do that one. So um, every year, you have periodicals and uh, journals and institutions that are associated with a higher education, and they will put out, um, they'll rank the universities and colleges of the world. There's over 8,000 universities and colleges in our world, and they'll rank the top 200. And uh, every year, maybe about half a dozen Canadian schools will crack the top 100. My school, Mac, U of T, boo, um, UBC, uh, McGill. But year to year, it seems like it's the same four or five schools that jockey for number one, right? Harvard, MIT, Cambridge, Oxford. Year to year, it seems like those ones, maybe another one is thrown in there battling for the top-rated school in our globe, in our world. But most frequently, the school that wins out as the number one school in the world is Harvard University. And uh, my oldest brother, I have three brothers, they're all uh, quite a bit older than me, and uh, my oldest brother didn't make it into Harvard, but that was always his, his dream to have one of his kids go to Harvard. Now, of the four of us, one of us did make it, our, my second oldest brother graduated from Harvard Law School, uh, but the rest of us uh, didn't make it. And so the oldest, even before he became a parent, it was his goal to like send his kid on to Harvard University. And so he did his MBA at Western. He started working uh, in the States in Manhattan on Wall Street as an investment banker. And while he was working in Manhattan uh, on Wall Street, he became friends with a lot of uh, Harvard alumni. And so some of his friends were still pretty deeply connected to the admissions process at Harvard. And so uh, my brother, and again, not even a parent at that time, would start talking with these guys. And what he found out was that um, while from any high school you can apply and get into Harvard, like in New York State, that's where they were, uh, within Manhattan, there were three schools in particular, three high schools in particular, that sent a disproportionate number of their graduates onto Harvard University. There's Hunter College, uh, Hunter College Secondary School, Exeter, and the third one I can't remember. And so he's like, oh, okay, so if I want my son or child to go to Harvard, then it's really vital that I can get them into these three schools that send a disproportionate number of their graduates onto Harvard. So he met with the admissions of those high schools, those private high schools, found out that they themselves select from a, a, a small select pool of elementary schools. No, okay. So then he goes to the admissions of these elementary schools and just, hey, you know what, like when I eventually have kids, that'd be great if they can come to this school. Um, so what do I have to do? And uh, well, it turned out that these, the small pool of elementary schools drew from a small pool of preschools. So then he went to these preschools and said, hey, when I eventually have kids someday, I'd love if they go to this preschool. So what, what, uh, what do I have to do? 
And uh, right off the top, these the schools, they test your child, your toddler, academically. And they have to test out in the 98th percentile. So top 2%. Uh, otherwise, you can't get in. So then eventually, he had his first child. And right from the get-go, that little kid was precocious. Like, he was just, wow, this guy's something else. He academically tested, and he was in the 98th percentile. So he was able to get him into that preschool. From that preschool, he's able to get him into Hunter uh, College Elementary. And then his son graduated from Hunter College Elementary to go on to Hunter College Secondary School. And he graduated from Hunter College uh, Secondary School and went to and graduated from Harvard University. And he went on to get his MBA as well at Harvard University. So what an amazing plan, right? I mean, <clears throat> it's really forward thinking. I mean, he's not even a parent and he's thinking this way and and he does all the research to figure out what's going on and how to facilitate this. Tremendous plan, right? But, but as far-reaching and as comprehensive as that plan was, my question in all of that is, so where is God in all that planning? Where is the Lord in all of that planning? Let me ask you a question. When you make plans, like do you plan around God or do you plan around God? Like when you're, whatever plans that you make, career plans, life plans, do you plan around God, meaning God is at the heart, God is at the hub, God is the filter, and everything goes through God? Do you plan around God? Or do you plan around God, meaning you're playing keep away from God with your plans. You're playing monkey in the middle with God. God is a monkey in the middle, and it's keep away from God with your plans. Do you plan around God, or do you plan around God? The scriptures have quite a bit to say about planning, and the one text I want to take you to this morning is found in the letter of James. I invite you to turn there with me to James chapter 4. So James, in a nutshell, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he's a leader in the early church. He's writing to what scholars believe is an economically diverse, meaning there's some well-off folk and there's some poor folk in this, in this church, and it's a Jewish community, Jewish-Christian community, that's undergoing persecution. And, and so there's an, a number of uh, important themes like perseverance, endurance that you see in this letter. But one of these themes is, is also wisdom, right? Right from the get-go, he says, does any of you lack wisdom? He should ask God. So you have this theme of wisdom that runs throughout James. And in James chapter 4, um, we're going to look, look at how we can plan our lives wisely. Like maybe you heard today in your in the midst of plans, or you're about to make plans, and I think this text will help you help us plan our lives wisely. Because what I want to show you from this text is this, to plan wisely, God and his glory have to be both the starting point and the goal in all of your planning. Right? To plan wisely, God and his glory have to be both the starting point and the goal in your planning. James chapter 4 Verses 13 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now listen, you who say, <clears throat> today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we pause in your presence, and uh, uh, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to continue moving in our midst, opening up our eyes to see truth, opening up our ears to hear what the Spirit would say, opening up our hearts to respond to what the Spirit would whisper to us. Lord, give us soft, pliable hearts, and may we May you affect change in us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Even this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to plan wisely, God and his glory have to be both the starting point and the goal. Uh, The the text first tells us, it gives us evidence that we're playing keep away from God with our plans. You know you're playing keep away from God with your plans if you run your life without genuinely seeking God. If you live your life without genuinely seeking God, you are playing keep away from God with your plans. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. So there's two examples of living your life without seeking God. And the first one is if you plan where to live without God's input, according to the verse. If you plan where to live without God's input. Many of us have moved. How many people have moved in your life here? Put up your hand if you've moved. So most of us have moved. My first seven years of marriage, we lived in four different cities, two different countries. It's not because we're in witness protection or anything like that. It's just kind of how things happen. And when you move, you are, um, well, the mantra is location, 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 right? You have to have the location to the amenities, a good school zone, um, And, of course, resale, because eventually you'll maybe outgrow that house or just want to move or downsize or whatever. Uh, So location, location, location for resale. And all those things are important. But in all of the moving that we do, how many times do we ask God, God, where do you want us to live? Where do you want us to live? Because, yeah, God is concerned about the amenities. Yes, God is concerned about... School zones, yes, God is concerned about location, but the other thing God is concerned about is, well, I want people here to reach this group, to bear witness to these people, to bear witness to those folks, to have somebody pray and engage with these folks. God is thinking along those lines as well. Planning where to live without God's input, that's One evidence that you're living your life without generally seeking God. A second piece of evidence, according to the verse, is if you plan what to do with your life without God's input. Like choosing a career is a huge life issue. It's a huge life issue. And and we, we ask people, and we're supposed to ask people. We ask our parents. We ask our siblings. We ask guidance counselors. We ask people that we think are wise that we know. And we should be asking uh, these folks. In the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, Scripture says. But how many times have we asked, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Like, God, what do you want me to do? That's a long, chunky years. Like, what do you want me to do? When I was in elementary school, I wanted to be an architect. When I got to high school, I wanted to be a medical doctor. When I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
And then I ended up becoming a chemist because I majored in chemistry. And I asked brothers, older brothers, I asked friends, I asked parents, I asked guidance counselors along the way. And that's all really good, but the one person I never asked was God. I said, God, what do you want me to do? When you live your life, when you plan your life, what to do without God's input, that's evidence that you're playing keep away from God with your plans. Why do Christians play keep away from God with their plans? Let me give you two reasons. First, we assume God doesn't care. God really doesn't care. Like, like God has bigger fish to fry than being concerned about what I do with my life. Right? God is concerned about the homeless. He's concerned about the war in Ukraine. But as to what I do with my life, God's eh, he's got bigger fish to fry. He really doesn't care about that kind of stuff. Right? He cares about the sacred, coming to church, reading scripture, witnessing to my neighbor. But in terms of like career, living, stuff like that, he doesn't really care about that. that. That's one of the beliefs why we play keep away from God with our plans. But that belief, that assumption, it actually insults God. It's a slam against God's character. Yes, God, you care about some of me, but you don't really care about all of me. How far does God's concern for your life extend? Jesus actually addressed this um, in the missionary discourse in Matthew, where Jesus said, Matthew 10, Jesus said to his disciples, like a little sparrow flying across the sky, that sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly father. Think about that. That sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, whether it falls to the ground because it's got a cramp in its wing, whether it falls to the ground because somebody shot it to the ground, whether it falls to the ground because a bird of prey forces it to the ground. It does not fall to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly father. And Jesus says, like, how many more sparrows are you worth, my disciples, to God? Like, God's care and concern if God is that concerned about a sparrow, how much more concerned is he about all aspects of your life? Jesus asked his disciples rhetorically. Paul put it this way. Paul said in preaching in Acts, Paul says, God has determined the time set for every person and the exact places where they should live. God cares about all aspects of his life, but we assume he doesn't. He cares about some, but not all. The second reason why people play keep away from God with their plans is that we, we assume we don't need God for everything. We, we need God for some things, you know, being able to read scripture and understand it and being able to witness to my neighbor, that kind of thing. But in terms of some other tasks that we engage in, like factoring polynomials, riding a bike, driving a car, ah, I got this God. I don't need your help. I got this God. But again, that type of attitude it insults God. It really does. Moses, when Moses was preparing the book of Deuteronomy, he was preparing Israel for life after him, right? Because Moses isn't going to be able to lead them anymore into the promised land. And so he's preparing them when they're in conquest in the promised land. And he says to this, you may say to yourself, like when you're doing your conquest and expelling nations and, and all this stuff, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. 
Even the ability to produce wealth comes from God. You might know people in your life, everything they touch turns to gold. That's not through their own know-how. God's given them that ability. If you run fast, jump high, play guitar, piano, art, whatever that is, whatever that is, that ability comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, James says in chapter 1. But we assume we don't need God for certain things, and so we play keep away from God with our plans. So let me ask you a question this morning. Maybe you're in the midst of planning, or you're about to plan. Are you playing keep away from God with those plans of yours? So that's the evidence. The other thing I want to take a look at from this passage is the reasons why, why it's unwise for us to play keep away from God with our plans. Why is it unwise? And I think the text gives us four reasons why it's unwise for us to play keep away from God with our plans. Firstly, because we are limited in our knowledge. We as human beings, we are limited in our knowledge. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. See, we don't know, we're limited in our knowledge, we don't know what the future holds. I mean, generally, we kind of know what the future holds. Tomorrow's Monday, I'm going to get up, going to have breakfast, going to have a quiet time, going to exercise, going to get on my to-do list, and do all these other things. So, so generally, we, we know what the future might hold, but specifically, we do not know what the future holds. She was only 14 years old. She was energetic, responsible, respected, popular, friendly. She loved shopping and hanging out with her friends. <clears throat> People who knew her described her as an amazing girl. She was involved in her community doing music and dance programs. She's the kind of girl who'd cross over the road just to say hi to you if she saw you first. Her summer Monday started off like any other summer Monday. She woke up, ate breakfast, got dressed, walked to the community center, spent most of the day there in rec programs, recreational programs. Later, she met up with her best friend at the nearby McDonald's. Afterwards, she went back home to enjoy a neighborhood barbecue. That Monday started off like all the previous Mondays for Cheyenne Charles. But this particular Monday ended very differently. While she was enjoying that neighborhood barbecue, she got caught in surprise gunfire and was shot and killed. Monday, July 16, 2012, 10.40 p.m. Like, we don't know what the future holds, which is why it's unwise to play keep away from God with our plans. God, however, we don't know the future. God, however, knows the future. He is, as theologians Call him, he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows what will happen. And he doesn't just know what will happen. Like, he knows exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next month, and next week, next year. But he also knows what could happen. Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew writes this, that when Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. So Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you 
had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed uh, in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Not only does God know what will happen, he knows what could happen. That's what philosophers call middle knowledge. That God doesn't just know what will happen, he knows what could happen. If you're born five years earlier, if you're born ten years later, if your parents had divorced, if your poor parents didn't divorce, if, if you were born in this country rather than that country, he knows what could happen. He has all knowledge. We're limited in our knowledge. He has all knowledge, which is why it's unwise for us to play keep away from God with our plans. Another reason it's unwise, because we are limited not just in our knowledge, but in our abilities. Verse 14 continues, What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So mist is very ephemeral, right? It's just, it just it's, not a, it's an effect. It's not a cause. It can just, it's subject to pressure. You can blow on a mist and it goes this way or that way. It's very powerless, and he likens us to that powerlessness of a mist, of a vapor, a vanishing vapor. Not only do we not know the future, but we can't control the future. Even if we knew the future, we can't control the future. We're powerless, like a vapor, like a mist. When, when I realized that God was calling me to the academy, uh, just in my heart, it's just clarity. Say, yeah, God's calling me to, to serve him and serve the church in the academy. If I had power to control situations and circumstances in the future, I would have went straight into my PhD program, and I probably would have started teaching around 2000, something like that. But I'm a mist. I'm a vapor. I don't control the future, let alone know the future. And by the time I finally got to my destination in the academy, it was almost 20 years from the sense of the stirring of God as to where he's calling me ultimately to the time I finally hit that destination is almost 20 years. And something I've learned in the last almost 20 years is that God is never just about the destination. God is about the journey. Like we fixate on the destination, the ultimate goal. God is absolutely about the destination, but not just the destination. He's about the journey. They're twinned together in the mind of God and in the heart of God. The journey and the, to, and the destination are twinned together because the journey to the destination is comprised of life lessons and ministry moments. Like if you're a Christian here today, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God's ultimate plan for you is your Christ-likeness. That's his ultimate plan for you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That plan is Christ-likeness, your sanctification. He's fashioning you and shaping you to make you more like Jesus. That's his ultimate plan for you. And if that's his ultimate plan, and it is, then the journey to the destination, that's the ultimate destination, is comprised of, of life lessons and ministry moments. He takes you to particular situations where he can shape you. 
shape you a little bit more like Jesus and take you to another situation where you can shape you a little bit more like Jesus rather than that straight line, shape you a little bit more like Jesus. And then when he's shaping you a little bit more like Jesus, ministry moments where he, he has moved you to a particular place and situation where now he wants you to be his witness. We are his witnesses, Acts. To be his witness, to bear witness, to, to plant seeds in people, to water seeds that someone else has planted years ago, perhaps to reap a harvest of seeds that others have want, planted and watered. But that's the, that's the journey. It's comprised of, of life lessons where Christ is shaping us by his spirit and ministry moments where he is using us to advance his kingdom on the way to the destination. God is very much about the journey and the destination. They're twinned together in the mind and heart of God. We can't control the future because we're powerless, but God controls the future. He doesn't just know the future, he controls the future. And theologians call that God's omnipotence. He is all-powerful. He controls the future. And God's all-knowingness, right? His, his omniscience, it's tied to his omnipotence. They're actually tied. God doesn't know things just passively. He knows things actively. In that verse where Jesus says a father, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of the father, he goes on to say, even the hairs of your head are numbered. And the Greek construction implies that God is the one who's numbered your hairs in an active way. When God, if you have 10,000 hairs on your head, it's not because, and God knows that, but God doesn't know passively, meaning, mm, let me see, oh, he's got 10,000 hairs. On. No, 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 it's because they're numbered. God has placed every one of those hairs on your head. 9,999, 10,000. That's how he knows. His, his, his knowledge is very active. It's tied to his omnipotence. God knows the future. He controls the future. In the book of Isaiah, God gives us a, a verbal selfie, if you will, a verbal selfie through the prophet. Listen to what God says. God says, I am God, and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come, what I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God knows the future. God controls the future. Whereas we are very limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our abilities. As parents, and a lot of you here are parents, <clears throat> and I have three kids, uh, and the younger two are teenagers. One's beyond teen years now. And our goal as parents, like when a baby comes into this world, that baby is 100% dependent upon its parents to live. You remove the parents, it dies. It needs people. So even if the parents are out of the picture, dying in an accident, say, that baby is dependent upon adults to take care of it. 100% dependent. 100% dependent. And as that baby grows... On the one hand, it naturally starts to become a little bit more independent. But then as responsible parents, we're, we're embedding into that child independence. right? So in the beginning, we have to hold the bottle. But then the baby learns to hold the bottle. And then we have to pick it up to carry it everywhere. But, but then we teach the baby to learn to walk. So now they can go from point A to B without us carrying them. We teach them how to ride a bike. And then we teach them how to drive a car, which is where I'm at now with the middle one. But we're teaching them to become independent. 
And then one day, at the age of 42, they become independent. And we say, yay, you can stand on your own two feet. I'm so proud of you. Way to go. But the funny thing is with God, as our father, when we live independently of God, God is not proud. That does not make God proud. When we live independently of God, that does not make God a proud father. That actually makes him an angry father. Because playing keep away from God, living independently of God, is arrogant. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verses 15 and 16. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. You see, arrogance is a form of idolatry. In the Old Testament, arrogance and idolatry, they're tied together. And sexual immorality is thrown in there as well, but they're all tied together. So, for example, in the book of Acts, when King Herod... We read, on the appointed day, King Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And the people shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms. This is the voice of a god. Yeah, you know, you're right. I am a god. And in his arrogance, which is an expression of idolatry, God struck him down. Playing keep away from God with our plans is arrogant. And God's reaction to our arrogance, we just kind of bump up to verse 6. God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. God opposes the proud and the arrogant. God is angry when we act independently of God, when we, when we are arrogant in that way. He's angry. He still loves you. He still deeply loves you. But he's angry because the way you've chosen is a reckless one if you're living independently of God. So playing keep away from God is arrogant. And fourthly and finally, playing keep away from God, well, it's... Sin, as verse 17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So then, in the NIV here, means therefore, and so verse 17 is connected to, is linked back to verses 15 and 16. And so the good, meaning the good thing, is to plan around God, to to, to make God the hub, the heart of your planning. The sin is to play keep away from God, to plan around God. So which will it be? Hudson Taylor, who's uh, one of the great uh, Christian leaders in the 19th century, he spent most of his life in China. Uh, He founded um, uh, overseas, it's called Overseas Mission Fellowship, but it used to be called China Inland Mission. And he started over 100 schools there in China, and through him, whether directly or indirectly, saw hundreds of thousands of Chinese come to faith in Jesus Christ, a real pioneer of his time. <clears throat> well, he had definite <clears throat> excuse me, convictions about how to do God's work. He said, we can either make careful plans and try to carry them out in our own strength, and that's 
kind of how the world is, right? Make careful plans, diligent plans, meticulous, far-reaching plans, and you carry it on in your own strength. That's one option. Or we can make careful plans and ask God to bless them. And having been a pastor, that's how a lot of churches operate. Bless these plans, Lord. Or, he said, we can begin with God by asking him his plans and then offering ourselves to him to carry out his purposes. So how will you plan your life? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful <clears throat> that you have um, that you've called us to faith in Jesus and a uh, Lord that you are slowly, sometimes um, in ways that we can't even detect, are shaping us and fashioning us and making us more like Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who's mighty to save and mighty to transform us. And Lord, we recognize that um, sanctification, Christ-likeness is a process. It's a lifelong process. And it's like a slow cooker. It's not a microwave. And so, Lord, in this journey that you're taking us on, it's that uh, we pray, Lord, a prayer of release that your Holy Spirit would, would be using the different circumstances in our lives as life lessons to shape us. And, Lord, that you would be um, extending your kingdom through us, that we would bear witness to your grace and to your glory. God, we pray, I pray for any here who are in the, in the throes of making plans, whether it's career plans or life plans, um, uh, God, whatever that might be, Lord, that you would impart to them wisdom, that you would impart to them, Lord, a fresh sense of your spirits directing and leading, and uh, God, grant them faith, Lord, faith to follow in the path and footsteps, Lord, of Christ-likeness knowing that you are in control of all things, you know all things, and that, God, you have our backs, and that you love us and care for us, uh, even as you love and care for a, a little sparrow that falls to the ground. So much greater is your love and care for us as sons and daughters of God, and so we're grateful, Lord. And um, just pray a fresh infusion of your grace to everyone this morning in Jesus' name.